Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And today I'm going to play a recording that I made last Monday evening in the Live Salon. Our guest was Susan Hess Logius, and she is the producer-director of a film about the life and work of Dr. Stan Groff. As you know, Dr. Groff is not only one of the world's leading LSD researchers going back into the 50s with his work, he is also one of the founders of the field of transpersonal psychology and, along with his wife Christina, he created the system of holotropic breathwork. Now, technically, Susan's film is a documentary, but to me it's really much more than that because she wrapped her own personal experiences around the main story of Groff's life and work. Now, I've placed a link to the trailer for this new movie with the program notes for this podcast, and you can find that at psychedelicsalon.com. And if you have a few minutes, be sure to take a look at it just to get a few ideas about the graphics and effects that she uses in this full-length feature film. But enough of me telling you about this conversation. Why don't we just listen to it now? We have Susan with us here tonight, and and uh, I've had the the honor and privilege of seeing her, uh, you know, an early uh, cut of her film, which is just I think just stunning. You know, I I don't say that often because you know it's hard to make a documentary uh, fun and interesting, and we'll we'll get to the film in a bit. But I'll tell you what, you know, that, that uh, the, if, I think most of the people here, hopefully they had a chance to see the trailer. And everybody in, in, in my uh, listening uh, audience here, all the fellow saloners, uh, if they go out and listen to that trailer, they're going to not, in the beginning, first part of it, hear about Stan Groff. They're going to hear somebody say something that they've all said to themselves, which is, you know, I didn't really fit in until I had LSD. <laughs> and I mean, that that is something everybody here is going to relate to, uh, at least if not personally, by knowing some friends that felt the same way. So would you care to go on about that at all? Well, first of all, we just updated the trailer. So um, it's the same link, but it's the, it's the most recent version that reflects the entire length of the movie now. And, and what you're saying is true in the sense that um, I always felt like I came from another planet. I remember looking around and just going, I don't fit in. I don't, I don't relate to what these people think is important. I don't, I don't see the world through the same perspective that they do. And then, so I just felt like an outsider. And then when I had that first now, now, let, let, let me interrupt you just a moment. Where, where was this? What part of the world was this where you were growing up and feeling like an outsider? Uh, outside of Seattle, Washington. Oh, okay. Okay. Burien, Washington, a suburb of Seattle. Oh, okay. Yeah. And, uh, and so I was in New York and, and, um, friends of mine would go to studio 54 and that was the first time I had LSD. And I remember in that environment. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's about the worst setting you could do it in. Well, you know, it, it was the, the, Interesting. I mean, I understand the, you know, the idea of waves. I also um, recently interviewed Stan Groff's brother, Paul, who has studied the um, neurophysiological non-ordinary states of consciousness. And he talks about 
the, the brain has these oscillating waves. And so the waves that we experience in a psychedelic journey are a result of how the brain processes information. And so I remember these waves, you know, like, oh, my God, here comes another one. You know, and I just sort of hang on to somebody. And, and, and do you, would, you care to reveal how old you were then? I think I was 19. <laughs> so, you know, but the outcome, I remember just going, oh, my God, I love myself. Mm. And I felt okay. I finally felt okay. And it really did change my life after that. So, um, so I opened the movie with just a little bit about me so that people understand what drew me to Stan and, and why it was important. Well, you know, uh, most of the people who, who see this movie are going to either have been in one of his workshops or know of him or read one of the books or something like that. And yet, uh, and, and, you know, there, as you know, there are hundreds of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people whose lives he's affected. And, and all of us, when we come into contact with somebody like him, we get this, this energy. We want to go tell the world. And yet you actually did it. I mean, you did something that, that, you know, I, I know how hard it is to kind of bootstrap things like this. And, and, uh, uh, the, your dedication is amazing. And we'll get into talking about the film in a bit because it's truly a wonderful uh, movie you put together. But, but how, 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 uh, how did this inspiration, how and when, and then, you know, how did you bootstrap this whole thing? Because it's a big production. This is a feature film. Oh, yeah. Um, well, I mean, I have, I've made other films, so I've, I've done film work previously. Um, and uh, when I met Stan, when I heard him lecture, he covered um, uh, mythology. He covered uh, Tibetan Buddhism. He covered... Um, Tantra, he covered, he covered so many subjects, he covered shamanism, he covered all these things that I really wanted to learn. And my first thought was, if I make a movie about Stan, I'll get to learn all these things. <laughs> and, and then the second feeling I had was that I had, per, I mean, I'm 61. So I started in my mid 20s, uh, with shamanic work and other spiritual experiences. And so it's been a solid 30 something years of work. And, and so when I also, and quantum physics is another thing that I really appreciate. And so Stan's story represented everything that I had ever practiced. And then later, of course, in the course of making the movie, I was lamenting to Rick Tarnas that um, I, missed Esalen, that I missed Stan teaching at Esalen. And when he heard about all the things that I had tried, he said, you had your own mini Esalen. <laughs> and then I learned later that Stan had introduced every technique that I had done. And so, so it was just like, it was the perfect way to honor him. And, um, and Stan was very involved in the production of the film and his wife, Brigitta was responsible for raising um, a lot of the money that, um, allowed us to make the movie. We hired 35 actors and uh, had a film crew and we reenacted a lot of scenes and I've been working with motion graphics people and animators and a composer. So, you know, you know I, I even hesitate to call this a documentary because it's really a, a feature film and, and, you know, it's, it's uh, until the people, See it even in the in in the trailer though you can see some of the uh, uh, a brief glimpse of some of the the graphics and the effects and you know I've I've uh, 
known of Stan's work and read his work and, and I've known people that worked with him and, and uh, I knew a lot about him, I thought. But I, I learned so much more from your film that, that uh, there was a lot about him that, you know, maybe in a book I'd read or something, there would be a paragraph about it where you really, you know, you had the pictures and the images that really reinforced it. And uh, some great uh, uh, film of, of, of Stan himself. Mm-hmm. And for what it's worth, uh, I, Charlie Grove just sent me a, a copy of the video they made at uh, uh, the memorial. Uh, Stan was there with his wife, and, and uh, he was moving kind of slowly, but he was looking pretty good and chipper and cheery and, and uh, talking with a lot of people. So, uh, you know, he, he still hasn't given up the fight. Uh, mm-hmm. But he's, he's had some physical problems, right, some health problems? Well, you know, it's kind of remarkable. Um, he had a stroke in August of last year. And we had um, pretty much finished our interview process. Every time, uh, so Stan married a a German woman and they were spending most of their time in Germany. So every time he would come back to the United States and go to Mill Valley, I would fly down and interview him or show him footage and just make sure that, that he would look at all these reenactment scenes and say, well, no, we didn't quite do that. You'll see in the, in, when you watch the film, eventually there's a reenactment of all the um, insulin comas that he induced. And we give one of the patients a shot. And, and he looked at me and he said, I would have sterilized the area first. And, and it was like, Stan, <laughs> I can't, I can't you, go back and fix that. You know, you know those stories were, were some, some so amazing. Cause you know, I'd known that he had had, had to do that, but when, when I heard the amount of work that he'd done there, how he was able to keep his own sanity while doing that is pretty amazing. Well, yeah. I mean, he was really ready to quit. But so, so the last time I interviewed Stan was in May of, I think it was, I can't remember the year. Was it 2017? And then that August, he was going to have back surgery and he stopped taking blood thinner and he had a stroke. Mm. So um, although he's speaking and fully functioning, his, his uh, ease of speech is not fully back. So it's maybe the last time he's able to publicly express himself as completely and eloquently as he would like. Yeah. I, I was just going to say that, that he, he, you know, I could see from the, the video that he was talking with people and, and he hasn't lost the ability to communicate, but this may be the last, uh, one where he's perfectly satisfied that he was uh, on top of his game. Yeah. Yeah. And, and they, he and his wife Brigida have pretty well decided that they don't want him. They're not, I mean, God bless Ram Dass, but that's not the direction they want to go. They don't care to have him be remembered where he is now, although he's doing great, but it was, I just had a sense that this is now, you know, I have to work with him now. And I, and every time was this could be it. So thank goodness. Well, you know, that, and I think he made a very good decision there because at, at, it was Ralph Metzner's memorial that I was thinking of. Yeah. And there, there were so many people that spoke at the memorial uh, and there were some that were kind of disjointed, I thought. And then when I, when I, I saw uh, Stan there, uh, it, I thought, well, it was really wise of him to not go. You could see he was walking and talking. And then Charlie Grove told me that, yeah, he's, uh, you know, he's, he's hasn't lost anything. And as far as his uh, sharpness and all of his mind, then 
So he's getting things back, but I think that's a good decision to not leave your your uh, some of your final images at least uh, less than what you'd like people to see. Yeah. Well, and you know, he <laughs> when I first attended a lecture of his, it was one of the um, uh, what do they call those things? Uh, modules for the Groff holotropic breathwork training, and it was a six-day event, and there was two two breathworks each person and two days of lecture from Stan, and people were passed out cold sleeping, and he's just going, <laughs> and <laughs> so you know Stan could just go. I have I have you have no idea the amount of hard drives that I have to hold all of the footage that we shot and. What was wonderful was to have filmed a conversation between Stan and Ralph Metzner and between Stan and Michael Harner, and they're both no longer with us. Right. And um, those conversations are really remarkable. Uh, both men come from very academic backgrounds, Ralph and Michael Harner, and it was really in the last months of their lives that they publicly stated that there is a spiritual dimension there are spiritual beings and we interact with them and i find i find that remarkable that you know this was their finally finally they felt comfortable to say that yeah and and you know it's it's a part of personal growth obviously too they had to really be convinced of what they're saying they weren't just uh, out there you know selling a tape or something like that when when it comes to uh accomplishments you know I, I knew somebody that that worked with uh, Stan Groff out in Maryland and uh, I, I knew some of the work they did there but when I saw your, your your film and saw the entire history of Stan Groff's psychedelic research and medical work it's just astounding I, I don't see how anybody can can repeat something even close to that again well and that was you know the choice actually to make a biographical film about Stan was to show his process because I believe that that um, he's been dismissed by much of the the psychiatric community and they've just decided that you know oh no it's not true and so I felt that if I showed how he developed his theories 5,000 uh, sessions with patients and that's the official number, but there are plenty more, right? <laughs> plenty more. And, and so, you know, it took him years before he published the book. Um, I can't remember the name of it, darn it, where he lists all the experiences that he observed. Um, uh, forgive me for that. You know, I should have a list of his books, but if you go to his uh, website, you'll, you'll see them, but, but he really describes in detail the variety of experiences. And, and then you, you, I actually gained the courage to have one of these deep, deep journeys because a high dose is very different than what I had done it. You know, that was one hit at, uh, at studio 54. But when you have like three times that amount, it's uh, it's a very different experience. And, and you think sometimes you're not going to survive it, but he had the courage to do it. And I get, I got that courage from him because he over and over told these stories of people who went through that darkness and their lives were transformed. And, and so how old were you the second time you had LSD? Well, that was probably in my mid twenties. Wow. And, um, and it was, uh, but again, not a high dose. And, mm -hmm. and I, my experiences with LSD were one of them. I was trying to become an actress. I felt stalled. And I remember taking it, and as I sat there talking to somebody, it's like I could see myself climbing to the top of a mountain 
and I could see the path that I would have to take to succeed. And then as soon as it was over, I knew exactly what to do and it worked. And then the third time I did it was when I decided that I was done with acting and it was time to get behind the camera. Um, I did it in Santa Monica and went out, walked. And I remember walking to the end of the pier, um, Santa Monica pier and looking back at the coastline and thinking, the earth is sick of us. She's like a dog with fleas and she's going to roll in the mud to get us off. And, and that was 30 something years ago, you know, so that was the last time I had done it before these experiences during the course of the film. Now, now how did you find the, the breathwork uh, courses? How did you come into get into involved in that or learn about it even? Well, initially, you know, it's like, well, let's see, I was a mother of teenage children. I don't want to get arrested. <laughs> Where do I find LSD? You know, how do I, I don't want to end up in jail at this point in my life. So uh, when I discovered Stan, I was looking for actual um, uh, drug trials. I was hoping that I could sign up for a drug trial and do it legally. And that's when I discovered Stan. I, I, I've been there, by the way, in your same situation. <laughs> so, so I found Stan and then I saw that he did this breath work and I thought, oh, I'd had very powerful shamanic journey experiences from working with Michael Harner. And I thought maybe that's what I need. Maybe that'll reconnect me because I had had these deep, deep experiences. And then once I had kids, it was over. And, um, and I was looking for a way back in and I thought the breath work could help. And, um, and initially the breath work wasn't as powerful, but then after the psychedelic experiences again, and I go back to the breath work and it's amazing. So powerful. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting. Uh, some of your, your path, I, I had uh, done a little work with one of Michael Harner's students uh, before I moved out here to the coast. And then, uh, a, a friend of mine who is very much in your same position, you know, she, she was, you know, young, had children and didn't want to take, you know, there's a lot of potential risk besides, uh, all the psych, psychological risk, you know, there's the legal risk. And, and so she was into breath work. And so, uh, she, my wife and I went with her to, to one and, and I found it very fascinating. I, I really had a powerful experience, but it was so much work. <laughs> and, and at the time, I had like almost unlimited source of some of the purest LSD around. <laughs> and so I, I decided to just kind of pass on the breath work because I had some good acid. But for, for anyone who's in a situation where, uh, you know, they want to, to explore their consciousness mm -hmm. and they're in a position where, uh, even if they do have access to LSD, but they've never tried it, uh, breathwork is a really good way to get started uh, to, to, to test these areas because you, you can definitely get to altered states that are uh, very powerful. Well, then it's, I think the difference between a psychedelic experience for me and, and breathwork, just like with shamanic journey work, is, is you're, you set the intention and you do the work and you commit to it and it's up to your own kind of determination and will that gives you that experience. And I think what sometimes, at least me, when it's a substance that I've taken, even though it might be a very profound experience, there might be a residual doubt about, about was that real? And so when there's nothing involved and it's breathing or meditation or shamanic journey work, then there's this feeling that, that no, that was real. That was absolutely real because it happened without a substance in my body. 
So for me, it's been helpful in that regard. It, uh, and, you know, when my son told me that he'd been exploring mushrooms, I was like, okay, great. Now we're going to do breath work because I want you to see that there are other ways to go there. I think it's important to know that there's more than one way in. And, 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 you know, that's the kind of experience that Terrence called on the natch. And, uh, it's, it's definitely an experience. Uh, I think that, that the fact that he has, uh, experienced, uh, mushroom consciousness a little bit will make it even easier oh. to, uh, go through breath work because, uh, there's, there, you know, he knows what the space is like a little bit. Absolutely. And so I, I really, uh, I, I think there's a lot that can be learned with breath work. Uh, even if you are a psychedelic person, simply because you can do it more often, you know, you, you know, and it's free, you know, with no legal ramifications. Although maybe you can can tell me the truth of this. I've heard the urban legend that at one time they were going to try to make breath work illegal, and Stan laughed about them trying to make breathing illegal. Did you ever hear that story? I haven't, but you know that in France they declared it a sect. And they, they made it unavailable. They were teaching people, and the French government decided that it was a sect. They consider Waldorf education to be a sect, um, which is weird, you know. It's a weird, I mean, I'm married to a Frenchman, but it's, that's strange. Uh, so I don't, I don't know about that. But, is, that um, is that still the case in France? I'm not sure, but huh. Brigitte was... Uh, facilitating or teaching facilitators there, training people. And then I believe that, that there was an issue with the government because of the way they regarded it. Well, that really speaks well for breathwork because it, they obviously saw it as a threat and any, yeah. any change in consciousness from the status quo is a threat. So uh, I think that speaks well for it, although I feel sorry for the people in France, but uh, it's really difficult to get busted buying... <laughs> A breathwork course over the internet, you know? Of course. Well, and, you know, the, the idea of it, too, is um, I'm in conversation with Phil Borges, who wrote and directed and produced uh, a film called Crazy Wise. And Crazy Wise is about people who have psychotic breaks that are considered psychotic breaks, but in other cultures, they might be an opening to a shamanic destiny or to, a, to the capacity for for psychic and clairvoyant knowledge. Mm -hmm. And in our culture, if you're hearing voices and seeing things, then we better give you some drug to stop it. Right. And, and so these poor people that there's two people that are focused on in the course of the movie, and it's really tragic, the process they have to go through before they're finally allowed to be who they are. And so Phil and I would like to pair screenings of our film in addition to breath work at um, universities that have psychology and psychiatric departments and make it available to students as well as, uh, you know, alumni, people who are actually practicing so that they understand what we're talking about, non-ordinary states of consciousness, and then have a legal experience of what's possible. Now, if, if a student group or association wanted to, uh, to air, air, uh, view this, is, is there, does you have a, a speaker that will zoom in or something like that? Or, or is there a preparatory material that goes with it? Well, this we're working on actually, you know, we're just, we're just in the, the version that you saw is the final cut of the film. Mm -hmm. And we're in the process of finishing the score and some of the special effects. And then once that's completed, I've submitted it to various film festivals and we'll see where it gets in. But theoretically I can't have it available 
um, prior to screenings at a film festival, it would make it, you know, whatever, they won't consider it. And so we have to kind of wait until next spring, late spring, but then, yeah, absolutely available for groups and workshops and all kinds of things with materials that they can follow along or potentially even somebody Skyping in to talk to them about it. Well, for sure, <clears throat> when you get that, that uh, program put together and you're ready to roll it out, uh, I definitely want to have you come back so that we yeah. can uh, present this. And I know there are people maybe even here tonight who have contacts with some of the psychedelic student associations. And they become, right. they become very large, uh, both here and in Europe, I know for sure. So we, we can uh, help you get in touch with some of those people as well. Uh, I, I think this is really exciting because, uh, you know, that I've, I've read some of Stan's books and you're talking about finalizing some of the graphics and effects. And I have to really compliment you on the, the, the graphics were stellar. I mean, I've, I've seen a lot of psychedelic films and, and I, I, I'd like to rewatch this one when I'm stoned sometime, but, <laughs> but the, the part that really uh, made a big impression on me is, is I had, read more than one of Stan's books where his account about going through the birthing process and how that affects you. And it's always a picture of a, a, a little, uh, you know, person getting born. And you had an adult human in, in the fetal position with the graphics of, of the, the womb around it. And what an impression that made on me. All of a sudden, I realized what Stan was saying about the changes that you go through during the birth process, it never impressed, it never hit me the way it did with, with your film. So I think that just on that score alone, it's worth uh, getting into all these universities to, uh, yeah. uh, so they can really understand what happened to them. Yeah, yeah. And it's, you know, that was uh, initially, Stan, I said, Stan, because well, my, here's my method. Uh, often I have an idea, not quite sure. I'll put on something trippy. Uh, East Forest is perfect for just sort of nothing love really it. happening. I love Deep trippy. Forest, yeah. And then like a tiny, I'm a microdoser with marijuana, a tiny little bit of marijuana. And, and then I just, it just happens. I just see it. And then, and then I, I came to Stan and I said, I want to get dancers uh, to, to create the womb and be the fetus. And he was looking at me like I came from another planet. And, and then as I edited it together and he saw what I had in mind, then he was like, Oh, I get it. How did he like it? Loved it. I imagine. And and then breathwork facilitators were saying, it's so dark. And, and (laughs) (laughs) but that's what Stan loves, you know? So I I added a bit of happier stuff to it. But Stan was like, it knocked my socks off, you know, so. It, it, it certainly should. I mean, it did mine, too. So th- this is going to have a great reception. It's going to be fun to uh, hear what happens in the film festivals. Have, have you had an acceptance from any of them yet? Well, we did get one, but it was in Israel, and it would be for November, and we're not ready. So ah. um, I've got my fingers crossed that something will happen somewhere. Well, we'll keep our fingers crossed, too. So uh, before I... I you know, hog all the time here. If if anybody else would like to ask a question, like either raise your hand or unmute your mic or hit that little button somewhere and uh, we'll get you involved as well. Uh, Charles, I was wondering if maybe uh, a screening of this sometime next uh, spring might be working in Portland for you. Oh, we'd love to. In fact, I think I responded to um, an email that you connected us on and um, 
yeah, we would love to have it. He's an incredible innovator and it sounds like an incredible film. I really look forward to seeing it. Yeah, I did. I reached out to um, um, the folks at the Oregon Psilocybin Society. Um, yeah, they're a different group. Right. And uh, just to let them know that that this film is available for fundraising. It's not specifically about um, psilocybin, but I think it makes the case for this kind of deep work. You know, Susan, one of the, the th uh, things that kind of fascinates me uh, about your courage in making this is that you, you made it a very personal film as well. And, you know, the, 10 years ago, it was difficult to get anybody to kind of uh, come out of the psychedelic closet, but particularly a woman. Uh, and, and it all had to do with raising children because that's essentially where the responsibility is going to end. And, uh, you know, they couldn't afford to lose their children. And that's very understandable. But fortunately, we have people now like, like you and, and Shauna Holm, who uh, their children are, are getting to be adults now that uh, it's, it's a little more safe. And, and yet, uh, how are you, you treated among your, your friends and community that weren't really aware of your uh, <laughs> extracurriculars? Well, to be very honest, just about everybody that I know um, <laughs> has some experience with a psychedelic and they start telling me their stories, uh, how it was so amazing. Or I took acid and went to the art museum and it was like, wow, you know, and, and so somebody, everybody has some experience or a family member or a friend has suffered with um, treatment resistant depression or some issue that that the, the um, psycho, psycho psychological or psychiatric um, fields can't can't answer can't help so these individuals some of them have done ketamine some of them would be interested in doing um, mdma or uh, psilocybin or something like that so it's really fascinating uh, there's been very little resistance to it and there's been quite a lot of press. People are actually investing quite a bit of money now in these, uh, what was it, 17 million was donated to a psychedelic research center at Johns Hopkins. Roland Griffiths will be running that program. One of the interesting things is there's so many, uh, so much wealth being generated in the tech field uh, and the tech field was generated by, by acid heads, you know? Yes. So, so uh, they're getting into a position now to, uh, uh, fund the research, but you know the researchers have been there for a long time. Many of them have been, and and they've been working in the dark. But uh, it's being recognized by these young uh, wealthy uh, entrepreneurs, and they're they're putting money back into the research. And so I think I think the resurgence of, of what we know about these is going to be great. Uh, and and as Terence said one time, not a moment too soon. <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, that's kind of the point of the movie is, uh, um, I don't know, Rick Tarnas is a pretty brilliant man. He's written The Passion of the Western Mind. He's a philosopher and an astrologer. That, that is, is a must-read book. Yeah. That is absolutely yeah. must-read book. And I'm um, trying to think of the title of another one of his books that's a must-read. That uh, Cosmos and Psyche. Yes. Yeah, it's 3,000 years of Earth history through the lens of archetypal astrology. And it was Myron Stolaroff that recommended Cosmos and Psyche to me, and that's uh, when I learned about Tarnas. He's a really brilliant man. Well, he's in the movie, oh, right, you know, as right. you've seen, and, and he, what he's basically saying is that uh, this is it. You know, We are heading into a death-rebirth experience, and one of the points he makes is that it, you can't have a fake 
death rebirth experience. You, we have to really believe this is it and surrender just like in a psychedelic experience, surrender to the experience and allow something new to come out because it's really our limited sense of who we are and how we are in the world that needs to shift. There's got to be something to these experiences, whether they come through breath work or psychedelics or what, but the experience of an alteration of consciousness out of the status quo that is really important to survival, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, there's a, a, pr a practice that I do now that's um, based in Tibetan Buddhism and it's called uh, Ch, which is essential. It's basically a sacrificing yourself. How, how do you spell that? C-H-O-D. And it's the idea is that you're, you're chanting and you're imagining, uh, you're describing how you're offering yourself and you're eaten first by the gods who are so pleased by the nectar of your, your purified brain that they bless you and suddenly you become this purified source of nutrition and nourishment for all the souls, uh, you know, the entire spectrum of beings. And the idea is that by, by feasting on you, by, by eating every tiny bit of you, that you help up, uplift the rest of humanity. And so it's really sort of practicing dying you know, practicing giving it up. I think it's a really powerful thing to do. What were the two books? Oh, the two books that we talked about? Yeah. Go, go ahead, Susan. The, the Richard Tarnas books. Oh, right. Yeah, Richard Tarnas wrote um, Passion of the Western Mind, uh, which is a philosophy um, textbook for many colleges. And it covers the, you know, early Greeks all the way through to the postmodern. And the second book is, is called Cosmos and Psyche. And that covers 3,000 years of the world's history, but through the lens of what were the planetary transits. And so it shows, it, it really does show kind of how Jung and Freud and Einstein were uh, all born around the same time and what were the planetary transits and what was the basic aspect of their charts and why Freud had a particular perspective and Jung had a different one. Um, and when you see how these things work, it's, it's pretty remarkable. Yeah, and, and, you know, this is a book that I, I urge uh, skeptics about astrology to read because, first of all, it's a big book. It's, it must be 500 pages or so, and it is, it is so filled with, with facts and logic that uh, facts are amazing. I mean, the, the number of what we would, uh, some people would call coincidences is, is uncountable. It's really uh, uh, fascinating. And like I say, that uh, astrologers don't need to read it. People who have a little skepticism about it uh, should read it. Uh, people like me, I guess. But uh, it, it really, uh, it really ca captured me. And, and uh, the, the, the book about the Western mind is like a, a trip through history of Western consciousness. Yeah. And, and it's, it's, got a lot of great stories in it. I mean, I'd forgotten about that until just now. I'm going to have to reread that. That's one I'll put back on my list. Well, and the other thing that I really love about that book is that it, um, it, at the very, the epilogue of it really talks about Stan's work. And it really mentions how Stan, how Stan's understanding of the perinatal matrices and these death rebirth experiences describe what's happening right now. And it really is sort of gives a framework for the postmodern in that way. 
And, um, and the other thing, and I remembered the other book that I was trying to remember is called when the impossible happens. That's Stan's mm. book where he writes um, so many amazing stories that cover reincarnation. It can cover, um, let me think reincarnation, um, being possessed by the devil <laughs> uh, or what he perceived to be the devil um, past life, uh, memories, relationships with other people, um, how some people are channeling access to mythic uh, characters that they couldn't otherwise know. And so it's, it's a remarkable book for just showing the full spectrum of experiences that are possible. You know, I, I, uh, I came to Richard Tarnas, like I said, through Myron Stolaroff. And, and by then, you know, he was a professor, at maybe I think at CIIS, I'm not sure where. But, you know, he, in my mind, he was this big, you know, professor in an ivory tower and thinking about these things. And then in your, your film, I discovered his connection to Esalen and Stan Groff. And all of a sudden, so many more of these things started making sense to me. You know, that, that uh, one of the things that, that struck me when I was, I was watching your movie is that how many of my intellectual, you know, people I admire intellectual heroes, I guess, uh, are in that. I mean, you, you've <laughs> hit the base uh, home run with so many of them. I mean, it's, it's really a, a fun film to watch, and, and I look forward to seeing it again, actually. Well, and the goal, actually, of the eventually, um, and I'll probably start sooner rather than later, I will be, um, we will be creating a, a, the website will have the possibility of subscribing and then you would have access to all the full length supporting interviews. Fritjof Capra's interview is remarkable. Uh, Will Keepen, who's was a physicist and then he basically created environmental science. And now he's, then he got a comparative religion degree and now he's doing something called gender equity. And so his understanding of spirituality, quantum physics, uh, you know, all these things. It's really remarkable. Richard Tarnas, uh, in depth about this process we're going through, Michael um, Murphy and the stories that he tells about Esalen and Stan's time there, Rupert Sheldrake uh, and, and what he has to share, um, Sean Kelly, who's a professor at California Institute of Integral Studies, also it has... Um, he describes the transpersonal psychology perspective. So there's just a lot of information um, by these people that we interviewed. It's a real rich source of information. Richard Tarnas's daughter, Becca, fully describes archetypal astrology. And then Susan Mokelke, who's the president of the Foundation for Shamanic Studies, also describes what is their process of teaching shamanism and the worlds that we have the possibility of interacting with. So it's it's meant to sort of be a portal for people who watch to whether it's breath work or um, sh shamanic journey work or psychedelics or whatever that they might find a pathway to um, continue their work. Well, you know, all of that that footage of interviews that you described is like so invaluable. And and if once you get that set up, I'll, I'll be one of the first people to subscribe because you know that that I just. I'd just love to hear some of these people in more in depth, you know, and, and, in in an unedited interview, just so that you can kind of get the flow of the thing. And, and, uh, and yet you have such valuable information. I was thinking earlier how, 
uh, I, I would hope at the very least, and I know it probably would wind up in an archive somewhere. But, you know, the, the uh, Timothy Leary material is now in the New York City Public Library archive. And, and a, a lot of uh, uh, other people's uh, stuff like Gary Fisher's at Purdue and stuff, but nobody sees it. And so by, by doing this, I mean, making it available in a, an Internet accessible archive, uh, particularly for scholars and, and young kids who are going to be doing research for, you know, dissertations, things like this. Uh, what a valuable resource. I'll definitely help you uh, publicize that. Oh, good. Yeah. Be a participant myself. <laughs> well, I, I learned a lot. I really learned a lot. And uh, Stan gave me a really great compliment because I gave him a copy of all these full length interviews that we had done and uh and he told me I was the queen of slicing and dicing because <laughs> the interviews are maybe an hour long and yet I'm pulling three minutes out when I finished filming um oh darn it the head of maps darn it what's his last Rick name Dotlin. yes and Rick went on for an hour non-stop and then he's done and he goes I, I couldn't I could have told you that was Rick <laughs> <laughs> Rick's, well, Rick's then, a longtime friend. I've known him since before he started MAPS. So, yeah, well, and then he said to me, good luck pulling three minutes out of that, you know, and it's like, <laughs> well, I you will. Did, but you did. I did, I know. You know, I, I, I edited about 100 uh, uh, video programs for a TV show in, in Tampa, Florida. So I know what editing is like, particularly if you get a loquacious <laughs> subject like Rick would be. <laughs> yeah. But he's funny. Rick is very funny. And you, you earlier you mentioned I'm so brave. Well, one of my first conversations with Rick was, can I talk about my psychedelic experiences without opening myself up to being arrested? And he said, you cannot perjure yourself. I'm, I'm sorry, you can't, you can't incriminate yourself. So therefore, you can describe all you want, but you, you, know, you can't bear witness against yourself. It's, it's the law. It's not acceptable. So Michael Pollan and his book about all his experiences, um, I, he's, in, he's not in jail. <laughs> I saw him. You know, I, I, I actually hesitated 15 years ago when I started this. I wasn't sure I should call it the psychedelic salon. But, uh, you know, I am a lawyer, so I, I knew, you know, how to avoid those uh, traps. But I asked both uh, Terrence McKenna and Sasha Shulgin on different occasions uh, what it was like when they became public figures. And they both said the same thing. It's the more public they became about the, the psychedelic community, the less intention uh, attention they got from any authorities because they did not want to give them any free publicity or make them seem important. And they said, uh, Terrence said he, he didn't get hassled at all. And, and Sasha only got this one time. So, uh, uh, you know, the, the more public you get, now I've been doing this for, this is my 15th year and, you know, I've done almost 700 of these programs and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm good. I was good friends with Nick Sand and stuff like that, but I've never been contacted once. You know, I'm, I'm very open, but again, I'm very clear about, we don't talk about where you can sell these things. We don't have average. I don't even have Google ads on my site. I try to keep it so, so that they don't get tracked. There's a lot of young people come out here to hear these things. And, and, and one of the intentions of these podcasts is to reach the, the people that are sitting out in the heartland and they're in a small town or living on a farm and they've, they've stumbled on mushrooms or something. And they think they're the only people in the world had this experience and, and they're afraid to talk about it. And all we want to make sure people don't feel alone because I was like that for a long time. I thought I was the only person my age in my community that was doing this. So uh, uh, I want to make sure that people know that uh, uh, 
there, there are, it's, it's just not uh, young people that <laughs> there's, now I'm 77, but there's a lot of people older than me that are doing these things. So uh, it's, it's not about, you know, having a good time. Now, granted, you know, we've all enjoyed ourselves. I'm sure uh, Studio 54 on acid was probably much like the start club on MDMA. You know, <laughs> it was, it was an experience, yeah. but uh the, the people who are listening to these podcasts and are here tonight are, are not the, the tourists that want to come and just have a quick trip and go home that, uh, you know, we come because it is enjoyable at first, but then it becomes really hard and difficult work. And, and, uh, not everybody's cut out for that, but the people who just do stick around, I think are, are the ones who are going to be raising, uh, the kids that we want to see leading the, the world here in the years ahead. Well, and I think um, one of the people, uh, we've had a, a number of screenings over the last five months or so to sort of gauge how well the film was working, to see what wasn't working, to fix the storyline and the pacing and all these things. And so um, one person spoke specifically about the value that this film holds for young people who are exploring and experimenting with the idea that, A, you better know what you might uncover and don't be afraid if it becomes dark, but that, and then the wisdom of having someone with you who is sitting for you, you know, that's the term, who's your sitter, who's going to make sure that your experience is safe, who's going to be there to, you know, put your feet back on the ground if, if you're spiraling so far out, you're afraid you can't come back. And so the film is really meant to show people who might sit for somebody and people who might have that deep experience that, you know, you can survive it, but you do need to be in the proper setting. You do need to be safe. And, um, and, and that's, that's critical. And it's not, yeah, it can be fun, but it, especially a higher dose, it, it's often quite deep. And what archetypal, astro archetypal astrology does is it can give you an idea of what you're headed into depending on your transits. Like I didn't know uh, initially making this movie that I had what's called Pluto opposite my um, son, my natal son, which is nothing but death, rebirth and vomiting. And it's the, it's the shamanic dismemberment. And so all of my experiences in the course of, of these four years, that was the length of the transit were death and, you know, just basically being shredded. It was not fun. Um, it's been a while since I've done it because I kind of needed to, you know, I'd rather meditate for a while. That was a bumpy ride. And and that's one of the other things that, that you learn that, that the peer pressure no longer has any effect on you, that you, you have these experiences when you need to have one of these experiences yeah. and you, and you always know. And, and by the way, I want to compliment you for showing that uh, one kind of a bad trip a guy was having on a breathwork experience because, uh, you know, uh, I, it was very similar to a, a guy I was sitting for one time on a ketamine experience where it's quite frightening. And I think it's important to people to see that it's not all just, you know, you know, sunbeams and moonshine or moonbeams, I guess, sunshine and moonbeams. I don't know. But in any event, uh, it, it's good to, to, to not gloss over things like that. But uh, as I was watching it, uh, you, you mentioned something here about younger people. For me, I, I've, got, uh, I've got people that, uh, fellow saloners who have been listening to this program since their early 20s, who now have teenagers of their own. Yeah. And they are, uh, 
they're they're all you know having all kinds of issues and you know how do I deal with this you know and and I'm not the right person to to tell I was 42 years old before I had my first experience and I was a horrible as far as a, a parent of a, a, a young man who was having some great experiences and, and is now a really close friend of mine uh, my oldest son but but uh, you know this this film is something that I think parents can sit down with their teenage kids who are learning about psychedelics. And this is a really perfect uh, uh, enclosure, a perfect space for, for you to sit down with your kids or your grandkids even and say, here's what, here's what mind work, what consciousness is all about, you know, and, and, and you need to be really careful about these things because it's, it is a big deal. You know, somebody says here, just, you know, let's go to studio 54 and drop some acid. It could take you 30 years to recover. From well, the other point to make, you know, I, and um, it, we did put this in the trailer, is it's a moment from my experience where uh, I experienced my father dying before he died. And um, it was so painful. I really felt like a piece of my heart got ripped out. And, uh, and as I started crying, it was this flood of sadness. I mean, I really thought I couldn't breathe, like I was going to choke. And, and I realized in that moment that that when you do this work, you are opening yourself to the collective experience of these deep emotions. And, and what can come through you is not just your stuff, but the planetary, unexpressed, repressed emotional content that's just looking for a crack in the sidewalk, you know, a geyser to shoot out of. And so you can, you can have some really powerful profound emotional uh, expression and it's not yours necessarily it might initially be but then it becomes the collective and and if you're not prepared and then also imagine young people who have these experiences and they can't talk to their parents and they don't know who to talk to and and so for for the world you know the parents and kids alike I love what you're suggesting Lorenzo the idea that that if you watch it together, if a kid ha or a, a teenager or a young person has these powerful experiences, that they could then come to adults and, and say, I saw this. I felt this. Help me make sense of it. Because in the end, it's the ability to integrate that experience that will change your life. And, and being the, so upfront and honest with your kids in, in a very safe way by watching this film with them, uh, you're, you're going to install some, some trust, some two-way trust, because I, I guarantee if you have somebody that's uh, even just 15 years old, they know probably more about drugs than most uh, adults do because, you know, I mean, these kids know everything. And, you know, they know where your stash is in case you think you've got it hidden. <laughs> Believe me, uh, my kids, you know, my, my youngest son, let's see, he was born in 72, so he's kind of old now. That's my youngest. And, and my kids are telling me now stories about finding my, my roaches on a windowsill and stuff, you know. <laughs> I thought I was so clever, but I didn't hide anything from them. And, and, and now the other day, uh, my, my 11 year old granddaughter, uh, asked me if, if I, if it was, uh, uh, CBD in my vaporizer because she saw me outside with it, you know. So, you know, how did she know about CBD? I only learned about it recently. <laughs> so, I mean, we have to really be much more honest with our children today because they've got the internet and they, they know so much more than we did. Uh, me in particular, you know, so, so, but I, I don't care if you're only in your thirties, your, your teenagers know a lot right now. And so the sooner we can get 
clean with them and honest and have a, a good family discussions about these things, I think the healthier our families are going to be. I, I completely agree. And uh, I was so thankful that um, my both of my kids, now my daughter's 23 and my son is 21, that they were both able to come to me and tell me about experiences that they've had. And the one thing I've cautioned um, people when I hear that they do like MDMA at a rave or something, it's like you realize that you've just opened yourself up to the collective stuff in the room and that you could be going home with all that to process. And it, it can be, you know, so the idea of set and setting, where do you have these experiences? Who is around you? I've, I've been in ayahuasca circles and had uh, feelings of something stuck in my throat and, um, Actually, someone was there to do body work, thank God, and stuff started moving and it moved into my belly and I breathed into it and someone on the other side of the room starts sobbing. And then later describing how she was stuck and then suddenly there was this huge burst of energy and she, she could be crying. And, or, or you speak together after a circle and you discover that everybody saw a piece of the same thing, that, that there was some sort of shared experience there. So it's important to understand how these things work because then you're not putting yourself in a situation where you might be absorbing a lot of um, unprocessed emotion that is awfully dark and, and uh, could be disturbing. You know, Susan, you just brought something to my mind that I've never had thought about before because I always, like everybody in this community, we talk about set and setting. And we're always thinking about, or I am, I shouldn't only speak for myself. I, I think, well, what's my state of mind? What's my mindset? And how are, how are we set up tonight? we got the music ready, the candles here. But you just brought up a really important point is that the, the setting uh, right now is a global setting because of, of social media and the internet. And so that pressure out there is there. And also the, the mindset of our families and our friends and those around, we might get ourselves in a good space for two or three days, but we still are dealing with a lot of other people. So uh, I think that's, that's a really interesting point. Uh, and like you said that, you know, with, with breath work and, and meditation, you can pick a point you want to go to and an and intention. And while you do that with psychedelics, oftentimes you get spread in other places. And I think maybe one of the reasons it spreads out is what you were just talking about, is we're bringing in this other information energy. Or bringing in, or, or as uh, I interviewed Robin Carhart Harris as well, and he's currently um, the head of psychedelic research at um, Imperial College in London. And um, he he was talking about how the brain functions basically as a filtering device, that it, it narrows our perception and our ability to sense and feel. And that when, so the best way of describing it would be how the brain has these regions and each region is associated with a particular function. Excuse me. And then when you're in waking consciousness, these regions are basically only interacting with themselves when they've done scans with someone on a psychedelic, the entire brain is lit up. Every region is talking to every other region. And that's why it's successful in um, stopping a loop sort of mentality of addiction, depression, anorexia, compulsive behaviors. It breaks that hierarchical structure where it's one part of the brain who's basically deciding what's going to come through. And suddenly all these things are communicating. And 
I like to throw in my interview with Rupert Sheldrake, who has a field theory of the mind. And he describes that you're not, it's not happening in here. It's really what's out there. So if you think about the brain completely turned on, imagine if that means access to the field at large. So suddenly you have access to all this information. And then when this, the experience is over, that structure comes back in terms of, you know, regional activity, not total access, but new information came in, new ways of perceiving and thinking. So it's, uh, it's pretty remarkable. And then uh, Stan's brother, Paul, was describing how once you've had these experiences, once your brain has been able to go there, you can get it back. The, the way a um, flashback works is the brain has already been there. It's already had that experience. And so something triggers it, music, light, sound, smell, and then suddenly you're right back. The brain can go right there. So that's sort of something I think that's really interesting to understand. Yeah, you know, I I don't know where it was. Somewhere this this past week, I, I was listening to somebody talk about how memories are are stored in two ways. One is a memory, and the other, everything is a memory because uh, uh, all of our senses are you know microseconds or you know behind. So it's it those are fresh memories like what we have right now. And then there's old memories that have a little little uh, hashtag on it that says old memory. But sometimes that old memory gets confused with the real time, and that's deja vu. So yeah. as a geek, that made sense to me. <laughs> well, or if you – we also have a conversation between Amit Goswami and Irvin Laszlo and Stan, which just briefly shows up in the movie just to sort of acknowledge that we had that conversation. But you've got a longer one? Last an hour. Oh, and, wow. Uh, and so it's pretty interesting uh, because Irvin's perspective is that the Akashic field, everything that ever was and ever will be is available in these states of non, well, non ordinary states of consciousness when we open to them. And so his perspective is, uh, you know, a clairvoyant is just better able to see what's out there. Uh, past life memory might be an ancestor's experience that, that we're tapping into. He doesn't necessarily believe in reincarnation. He just thinks that we're accessing memories. I had a I got shoved from behind once and had this memory of having my head chopped off and many psychedelic experiences have been there. My mother told me when I told her about this, that uh, I have a cousin who was beheaded by a Cossack. And so <laughs> wow. it's like, so is that my memory or this cousin's experience? Or is it in what's called the junk DNA that keeps track of our ancestry? Who knows, you know? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But yeah, these are all such fascinating questions, and I'm I'm really looking forward to getting you uh, come back here once you get your your site together and you're able to uh, talk about how we can uh, let everybody else see this uh, wonderful film. I, I really I've become your biggest fan, Susan. So be sure we stay in touch because uh, this is something I think a lot of people need to see, and uh, to, I I plan to watch it with my grandchildren. So uh, well, uh, good. I love I really love what you're suggesting because I also feel like. You know, one of the things that Rick is, is suggesting and Stan as well, as Stan says individually, he's seen this remarkable transformation take place in individuals who are able to do this work. But is there time for, for, the, for the society at large, for the culture at large? I mean, who knows what's coming our way? Rick Tarnas has said things like there's plastic eating bacteria that, that 
presents itself. Who knows what the planet's capable of doing? Maybe all the creepy people will get on spaceships and head off to Mars, and then the planet will go, thank God. You know, all those wealthy folks that put us in the mess we're in right now. So I don't know what's possible, but I do know that it's really worth exploring um, that that sort of space between here and what's on the other side. The final thing I have to say is, um, uh, I don't know who's familiar with Rudolf Steiner, but he was the inspiration behind Waldorf education and, and was the founder of Anthroposophy. And one of the things that he talks about is the importance of not necessarily being positive, but seeing things as they are. And that we have the sort of survival mechanism to be critical to look for what's wrong and, and our reptilian brains are set up in such a way as to hang on to the memories of what was threatening and upsetting for our survival. But if quantum physics is accurate in terms of, of our things sort of what, what is being observed presents itself in the way it's expected to be seen. So if, if we're really participating in the creation of reality, then if we hold memories of what we didn't like and what doesn't work, and we're sort of projecting that onto every moment, then we're sort of perpetuating the bullshit that we're in. And if we're able to decide to like with fresh eyes, try to see the world and not allow ourselves to fall back into habit, I think we have a chance of, of something new happening. Well, I don't know how anybody could say that any better, Susan. I, I think that is a wonderful note to, to end on. So I thank you very much for your time and the work on this film. I know it's been a long four years, and I'm, I'm looking forward to the ongoing uh, uh, revelations that you come with all the, the new uh, uh, interviews, because I think that we can have uh, you here a number of times talks about oh, some of these full interviews. So I'm, I'm really excited about that. So thank you. Thank, very much, thank you for all that you're doing, and uh, we look forward to the next time. Thank you so much. And thanks, everybody, for joining in. Yeah, everybody. And uh, till next week, keep the old faith and stay high. <laughs> <laughs> okay, bye-bye. You're listening to The Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. And for now, this is Lorenzo, signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends.